Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. I'm Keith, and I'm back today with both my co-hosts, Eric and Nick. So so today we're going to be talking about your habits, specifically your money habits and how they affect your wealth accumulation. Uh, But first, to the guys, what it be, Nick? Nothing. This is a topic that's near and dear to me because it drives me crazy when people in all walks of life just set out these ridiculous goals, but their behaviors, their habits don't change. So I would encourage all of our listeners to read a book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. It will change your life. And if you're stuck in a rut, either financially or with uh, your spouse or your work or whatever, this will get you looking inward at your processes, your systems and habits. And I think you will enjoy our talk today because a lot of the concepts uh, come from that book. Yeah, it's an excellent book. I, uh, it's been a couple of years now since I've read it, but I've been following him now for a couple of years and he's got a good uh, weekly newsletter and things that go out, just, just topical stuff around habit forming and, and how that behavior can affect your personal finance altogether. Eric, what's going on with you down there in AZ? Nothing too, nothing too crazy. Just just um, sitting here while the, the weather is changing from a nice spring to a very hot Arizona summer. Eric, do you see any snakes? Because I know this is snake season down there. They start to come up from their burrows. Like, is that a problem for you? I live in the middle of an urban sprawl, and so I don't think we've left any room for the snakes or the scorpions or any of that. So I could probably go 10 minutes in any direction and, and get to there. But uh, no, I have... I've only seen one snake. It was a rattlesnake, and Nick, you'll love this. It was on the ninth hole of a golf course when my wife and I were going up to putt, and we heard it first and then saw it over on the side. So that's the only snake we've seen, and nothing big. It was you know, just a six-foot rattlesnake hanging out on the side of the green. Yeah, imagine lining up your birdie putt and just getting sniped in the Achilles by some snake, and you take a dirt nap. I mean, that'd be a horrible way to go. It would be embarrassing, yes. I, I wouldn't be my favorite thing to have on my tombstone. Here lies Eric. He died taking a, taking a death shot in the Achilles from a snake while lining up his birdie putt. I've spent some time living down there. I don't recall seeing any rattlesnakes, but I do recall coming down uh, the stoop, my stairwell there, and having uh, a mama and baby scorpions uh, all along the wall inside my house. So that is something that you got to look out for. So the scorpions are an interesting topic because when you're not from here and you move here, especially when you talk to other people like that, they're petrified of them. And they just think, you know, people pay $100 a month to have the scorpion guys come and make sure that they're never going to get in their house. You know, it's a whole thing, right? But then when you talk to people that are born and raised here, they're like, eh, scorpions. And the similarity that I have is growing up in Washington, as we all did, or Nick, you were, were you Oregon or Washington growing up? Washington. Okay, so 
we all have the similar experience then with bees. People that didn't grow up around bees and didn't get stung by bees as kids think that they are the scorpions of Arizona. They just freak out if there's a, and you see them, a bee comes in the house and they're the adult that screams and runs out the other side because they live somewhere where they didn't have bees. So I've started to come to the conclusion that I think scorpions are, a scorpion sting for the most part is gonna be like a really bad bee sting, but I could be wrong and I'm sure I'll have more information after I get my first one. Yeah, and we don't need to get too far on this, but it, when you got some time, you got some young boys, Eric, uh, get, get a uh, black light flashlight, go out after dark uh, into the rock pits and they're just everywhere, even in the neighborhoods. All right, well, let's jump in it here, boys. So we speak a lot about the importance of budgeting. We've had multiple podcasts on uh, that specifically, but we never really talked about the fact that a budget is only as effective as the actual habits driving the line items. So boys, talk to us about how bias and poor money habits can impede your path to wealth. So I, I kind of hit on this on, on the opening, but there, there's really two blind spots. I guess you can call them biases, but I think blind spots is more appropriate that I see with people that want to change their finances, but really don't have a framework or the right habits in place. And the first one is setting these lofty goals without any context, without any refinement or evaluation of their current processes or habits. And the second one is kind of admitting defeat or, or conceding defeat, like, oh, I'm broke. I'm always going to be broke. My parents were broke. My siblings are broke. My friends are broke. I'm doomed to be broke. Well, those are defeatist and I don't want to use the term loser attitude, but that's not conducive to, to changing your tra trajectory. That's not conducive to changing your path. Okay. So those, those are the two big ones. So there's this notion that humans are finished products, right? But you, you show me any human and they are a summation of their habits. Like I have a friend who's down on his luck. Like he just lost his job. He lives with his parents. He, he's just had a rough go and he's complaining about all of these things and I'm sitting there listening to him. And the questions I'm asking him are, who are you hanging out with? Like walk, walk me through a typical Monday for you. What's your diet like? Are you currently working out? And he, he's answering me like he's incredul incredulously looking at me as I ask these questions. And I think it's starting to dawn on him what I'm getting at. Like humans aren't finished products. We're a summation of our habits. And his habits are a result of where he's currently at. Now, it's easy to poke your head up and just say, I'm the unluckiest guy or girl on the planet. But show me any human that's not where they want to be. And you can look at their habits and there's a, there's going to be a clear story. Why? Yeah. I think so much of our life financially and otherwise fitness goals, however, we're sort of on autopilot and the autopilot is our habits. And so Nick, you've talked about goals there and Eric, I want you to touch on this because I've heard you speak about this in the past. When we're talking about building a budget and filling out the line items and things like that, we need to have a goal of where we want to be and then work backwards from there as opposed to another option, which most people who are just starting out in budgeting or getting their financial situation in order is to allocate the dollars they think that they're spending or they need to spend and then 
whatever is left over, that's what they think that they can allocate towards wealth. Eric, do you think that there's a better approach? Yeah, I think there's a few layers to that. One, I think that people, like Nick was talking about, they make these grandiose goals and there's no real strategy or plan or anything to back it up. But I think even further than that, we have this disconnect between what we think we want and what we actually do. So people will say, and I've used this example before, they'll say, I'm really passionate about the environment and I want to do all I can to help the environment and donate to these causes and do that. And then at the end of the year, you look over their finances and they didn't do any of that. So, you know, they, but they went out to Chick-fil-A 68 times, you know, and they did all of these other things that, that weren't really important. And if you ask them what, if this, that's a priority, they would say, well, of course that's not a priority. Well, your budget says, you know, otherwise that it is a, a, a priority, but to what you're talking about is it's a little bit different, but yes, I I'm a firm believer in setting your goals allocating your budget to point towards those goals as best you can, and then figuring out how to live off of what's left. So too often people think, well, I have to pay for my car. I have to pay for my house. I have to pay for all my food and my dining out and my Christmas presents and all that. And then I just don't have any money to save at the end of the, at the end of the month or the end of the year. Well, if you start to think about it in a different context and say, all right, before I do anything, I want to save $100 this month for Christmas next year so that I don't have to put it on my credit card. And you start thinking about those goals first, putting the money there before you pay the bills, before you go out to dinner, before you hang out with your friends, then you'll start to recalibrate the way you think about things. And I think that type of habit where you put your money first towards your long-term goals or even your short-term goals and then build your living budget off of what's left, I think that's a that's a good habit uh, to to strive for long-term. Eric, I have a personal example that kind of puts a bow on what you're talking about. So I was recently at a gathering, socially distant, and an acquaintance came up to me and said, like we, were, we were chatting about money. He was asking me some money questions. And then he said, hey, my spouse and I are finally debt-free. We used the stimulus payments from the last couple rounds to pay off all, all of our credit card debt. And then he said something, well, and I said, great. And then he said something that completely blew up any future hope for him to stay debt-free, for him and his spouse to stay debt-free. He said, I hope we can keep out of credit card debt. He said, I paid everything off. I hope we can keep out of credit card debt. So that tells me they're not willing to change their habits. They're not willing to change their processes. They're not willing to change the systems that got them into debt in the first place. He's just saying, I, I hope magically we, we stay out of debt. And of course, we've seen it time and time again. Someone pays off debt, nothing changes. They A year later, if I talk to this guy, he's probably going to be right back to where he started. Right. And that's, there's a whole topic to discuss in there. There's probably a, a single podcast we could make just on that. And that's the example of you know somebody that makes, let's say a household makes $100,000, but they spend an extra 10 on credit cards every year. They live a $110,000 expensive life, right? So there's always that delta between what they make and, what they, ha and, and what, they, what they need. And so rather than them looking at it as 
they've just made an extra $500 a month because now they don't have to make those minimum credit card payments. They'll, if they don't reallocate their budget or actually make a budget, then they'll just go right back to spending those same way. And over, you know, two, three, four years, those credit cards will be ran right back up. That's, that's what happens when you get windfalls and you don't change your habits after you fix uh, some of the wrongs. It's insanity, right? Doing the same thing, expecting different results. You got to change what's going on to get to you to kind of where you're trying to get to. Um, you both are great examples of sacrificing previously to get yourselves to a place now of, of very little sacrifice. What are some poor habits that you had to acknowledge and shift early on to your way to financial prosperity? Well, I'll uh, take it on a little bit of a tangent and talk about the same major habit that my wife and I continue to have and have had for 15 years plus that was part of the reason why it got us in a hole back in the day, but it still plagues us. And that is dining out. That is month after month, year after year, a lot harder in the beginning when we were first starting, but even to this day, we struggle with that. And there's two parts to it because I think a lot of times we think about it in terms of frequency. Oh, you went out to eat three times last week. That's too much. Well, did you go out to Subway or did you go out to Black Angus or did you go out to Metropolitan Market in downtown Seattle? The, it's not only frequency, but it's also the, just the level in which you do it. And I think our frequency has been good over the years and we've got that dialed in. But one of the things that we struggle with now is that we've got a taste for, these aren't fancy restaurants by any stretch of the imagination, but when you have four or two kids, two adults, a few drinks, maybe a dessert, kids like to drink Roy Rogers now, you know, all of those sorts of things. And at the end of the day, just a simple going out to dinner costs you at least a hundred bucks, sometimes even more because you're going to those more expensive ones. So that's one that we still struggle with when we were young and, and living in Los Angeles, we probably spent even more because that was what you did. You got out of work, you went out to dinner with your friends, you went to Taco Tuesdays, Saturday you went out downtown or downtown or you went out on the water. So, you know, for us, it's a little bit, I'm not really answering the question as far as what ones we had to acknowledge and shift, but I think it's important to bring up that topic because I think that's one that people struggle with constantly. And that's one that even to this day, we still struggle with. Well, and I think, Eric, that's, that's half the battle is acknowledging your blind spots, right? For you, it's Golden Corral. You know, for my family, it's spoiling our kids for my wife. Like she buys the kids knickknacks pretty much everywhere we go. It's a leak that I've pointed out. She doesn't like when I point it out, but I think she would acknowledge it. Uh, if, if, if someone forced her to. And for me, I'm a golf fashion snob. So I like golf attire. I just bought new golf clubs. It's, it's my passion hobby. It's really the only thing that I spend money on. Uh, but I'm not shy about doing that. And, and I just need to be mindful. So that's a blind spot that my spouse points out to me that I readily acknowledge. I think half of anything is self-awareness and being aware of where there's leaks and where there's blind spots, which is easier said than done. So yeah, that's a good point. And I think everybody needs to recognize their blind spots. And on that topic, I'd like to touch on something else that my wife and I have discovered about ourselves that some people may relate to this. And it's what we refer to now in our household as, we call it the cascade. And I'll give you an example, but in, in summary, it's basically where one 
decision in the beginning led to a series of decisions that had, you know, significant negative financial impact. And I'll give you I'll give you a quote hypothetical example that isn't that far off from one that we've done on many occasions. So you're sitting around on a Saturday, sitting on the porch, it's a nice day, it's getting close to lunchtime. Hey, what do you want to do? I don't know, we don't have any plans, so let's go out and grab lunch. So we grab the kids, throw them in the car, head down to the mall, have a few drinks at lunch. Now we start talking, you got a little buzz going, you're having a good time, what do you want to do? Well, there's a movie coming up in about an hour and a half, let's go see the movie. Okay, so what are we going to do for an hour and a half? Well, let's wander around the mall. Now the kids have got ice cream. Now we're walking into this store. Hey, didn't you want to get a new Apple Watch? Let's go look at that. Let's swing into this bar and grab another drink. And then it just starts to roll into this thing till you get to the movie theaters. Now the popcorn, the soda, the candy, you leave the movie. Well, now it's dinner time. You're right here. You may as well walk over there. You already got a parking spot. And now you find yourself having dinner at a restaurant at the end of the day. So what started as let's go grab lunch turned into hundreds of dollars and, and it was all because of that cascade effect, that first decision that led to all of these ones that ultimately put you into a negative financial position. Eric, I, I just did the cascade, as you call it. I, I bought new irons, and then I looked at my wedges and said, ah, these are last year's model. I bought a new set of wedges. Now I'm looking at my putter. I'm looking at my three wood. So, so cascading is a real thing. And I think we, we use the boat trailer and the new boat and the new Tahoe in a previous example. But uh, I appreciate your, your coinage of that because that is a real, a real problem. Well, it's something that I've got to be paying attention to. You're talking about buying a new putter. Here I am in the middle of purchasing some raw land and building a new house. And uh, so as I sit here and talk with my builders about, well, we could do this or we could do this, right? You have to have some real intention in, in these conversations to make sure that you don't stray too far and just continue to compound on you. But Eric, I'm going to pick up a little bit on what you were talking about with the dining out. So just specifically with me, one of the poor habits that I've always had, um, I think it stems back to my college days when, uh, when I was working up on the tugboats in Alaska and I was coming back at the end of summer with boatloads of cash and hanging out with people that didn't have quite the same access to, to cash that I did. But it's picking up the tabs, especially after a few drinks, that becomes even easier. So Eric, you're talking about going to dinner with friends and, and the way that that can get spendy. Well, wait until the anxiety of the bill comes and I don't like to put people out, so I'll just sneak off to the bathroom and cover the tab or, or grab the book and put myself on a high horse and cover that. But my wife has actually been the one that's helped me work through that. And I just had to realize that I need to have intent and be responsible for my habits and my financial spending. And so the same is true. I need to hold all the people that are with me to, to their same account that they need to be responsible in that regard. And, and if they can't afford this place or however on that, then they shouldn't have come. So that's been a big one for me is to just uh, buy what I want when I want and, and let go of that anxiety of, of having to cover everybody else for whatever reason. You hear that, Nick? I would be setting up some uh, lunch and dinner plans with, uh, with Keith here if I was close like you. Actually, Keith and I had lunch and I picked up the tab because I was hosting and I invited him. So that was the right thing to do. He did. But to be fair, uh, we did do the uh, cute little first date check dance, um, which, is, which is required. But also, Nick, you took me to your fancy country club where uh, I'm pretty sure you just charged it back to some special code word that you threw out. And, uh, and went from there, huh? That's another uh, piece of evidence that the only thing I spend money on is golf. So yes, I, I do 
have a membership at a golf club. But that's basically it. I mean, I drive a piece of shit car. My wife drives a minivan. Uh, I'm always checking the credit card statement. I'm basically Kim Jong-un of, of our budget, minus golf. All right, so we're talking about habits. And Nick, you're alluding to uh, the Atomic Habits book that you've just read to read up and understand this more thoroughly. I think that we all very much take part in this continuous learning, right? Uh, Nick, you talk about humans are not being a finished product. And I think what that means to me is that we need to be constantly trying to uncover new information, whether that's in cryptocurrencies or in, in habit building and how that works. Uh, of course, a lot of that done is just through reading and perusing news articles and finance things. How important is continuing to just pay attention to things and learn and read uh, a skill set that people need to take into consideration when they're really thinking about their financial stability? I think it's a mindset, and I've never met a successful person that wasn't obsessed with reading. So there's a lot of talk in our country about being educated versus not, not, not educated. And I think it should be reframed as those that like to read and those that don't like to read. And I know that's very simplistic and that's a sensitive subject. But the fact of the matter is having a growth mindset, being curious, asking questions, and having an appetite to read will set you on the proper path no, no matter what you're talking about. And to me, the most frustrating thing, because uh, for the listeners that don't know, I, I run an investment management company, and people in my social circle know that I do this. And so I'll get questions, like some very, very basic questions that if they would just do a simple Google search, they could readily find the answer, but they're agonizing over these questions. And to me, that shows a level of... I don't know if entitlement's the right word, certainly laziness. Uh, anything that you can find in 20 seconds on Google and you're asking me about it shows that you need to take some ownership and, and you want someone to do it for you. So again, having an appetite, being curious and being, and being resourceful because, you know, let's face it, we, we have access to more information now than we ever have had as human beings. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, Keith and I grew up in a house, and it sounds like you did too, where learning was important. It was something, you know, our dad always had a stack of books that he was reading. I always have a stack of books. Keith has a stack of books. You know, it's that constant uh, learning aspect. It was, um, I think he always said, it was something along the lines that you go to college, you go to school to learn how to learn. So that way you can continue learning as you go on. Learning is compounding. It's just like interest. It gets bigger and bigger. I think Warren Buffett even says that, you know, just that's what he does. He reads something like 500 pages a day and just learns about things. Um, you know, one of the things that's always been fascinating to me is you come across these people that it's like the day they walked out of their last day of school, they just went, there it is, I'm done. I don't have to learn anything ever again. And they'll brag about not reading books, brag about it. You know, I don't, I don't read books. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll, oh, I don't know how to do math. I, I, can't, I can't do math. Well, just because you didn't learn it when you were 13 years old doesn't mean that you need to live the next 60 years of your life not knowing how to do basic arithmetic that will get you through uh, you know, the rest of your life in a much easier manner. It's that on, it's that desire to learn ongoing versus just almost like a repulsive aspect to the thought of having to absorb new information. I really like that. Learn how to learn. Do you guys ever, I mean, it's been what, 15, 20 years since we graduated college. My, my math is a little hazy, but do you ever reflect about how little you actually learned in college? Like I've learned more the last four years 
starting a business, writing a blog than I ever did in college. I mean, college was a joke. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's there are things that I remember from college, but the thing that stands out the most to me about that type of su- or that subject specifically is the things that I actually did learn in college, but I had no concept of as to why it mattered until I got out into the real world. And a lot of that had to do with math because I did advanced math through junior high and high school and then took a lot of math as part of a business degree in college. And thinking about even learning about functions and all those things that at the time, all you're doing is just solving these math problems. And then now you get out into the world and you get out of finance specifically and you go, oh, PERT actually meant something. That was literally how you find this thing on a bond, you know, or whatever it is. It's like that, they just didn't use those examples. So I feel like, I don't know if it's because you're not exposed to the information or what, but there was a lot of stuff that you were exposed to in college, but it just, you had no grounding for why it mattered. So it was difficult to hold on to it until you saw it later in life. And Nick, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm pretty sure that I learned SWOT analysis in business school. So uh, there's there, there's that. But uh, joking aside, Eric, I absolutely agree with learning how to learn is so important. And, and Nick, to your question, that is what I take away from my years uh, at university, at undergrad anyway, before I, uh, we went on uh, to different schooling. But my first year in college I actually got kicked out for poor grades and it wasn't because I wasn't capable or smart or it probably was because I wasn't applying myself, but I just hadn't figured out the system yet. And uh, when I had a come to Jesus moment and got back enrolled into into business school, um, I completely changed that and ended up you know, with a 4.0 for the remainder or close to for the remainder of my time at school. It's, it's that learning how to learn and now taking that out uh, into the real world and applying that into the real world business and, and jobs that we're taking. Uh, it is. Uh, continuous learning is a habit. And so for those listening too, you know, we can only get so deep about these things on these podcasts, but that's what we're talking about, this continuous learning. You know, if, if you're listening to this and you realize uh, that some of your habits aren't aligning with some of the goals that you have and things like that, then you do need to go pick up a book. You need to go read some stuff on it. You need to get deeper uh, than just maybe listening to something like this. And the last thing I'll say on this, but I think this does apply to the bigger picture is to me, it's absurd that the major you choose when you're 19 years old, I think of myself at 19, I was a complete idiot. The major that you choose at 19 years old sets your career arc and you're just supposed to stay on that narrow path. To me, that, that signals a rigid, fixed mindset that you can't get outside of your comfort zone. You can't take risks. You can't try new things. And we've been programmed to think that way. And I think it's completely absurd And back to my earlier comment about the person who's broke that just has resigned to the fact that they've always been broke. I mean, it it just kind of reinforces that that fixed, non-growth, non-learning mindset. And uh, I've 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 toyed with actually. This is a complete off the rail, but quitting my job and doing fully immersing myself in something completely different that I know nothing about and blogging about it and writing about it and doing video blogs about it just to show people that you can pivot if you fully immerse yourself, you're, you're curious and you have a growth mindset. All right, so getting back to uh, habits and budgets here. If, if a bad budget built from poor habits is no better than no budget, 
Let's talk about commonplace poor habits and how to redirect them. And I'm talking about for the people listening, we touched on this uh, a little while ago, kind of personally, some of our poor habits. But what are you guys seeing in your friend circles or peer circles of people continually having these habits that are adversely affecting um, what they believe to be their financial trajectory or financial goals? So I've got four specific ones that I see all the time. See it in friends, family, um, reading about it from other people talking about online, some very common ones I see. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about budgeting and planning and, and being on top of your expenses. But what I see most people do is they use their checking account balance as their rubric on whether they can spend money on things. So, you know, rather than having an actual plan, knowing that this month I'm going to have to spend $4,000 to cover all of these things, it's more of just, oh, is there money in the checking account? Yes, then I can buy it. If there's not, then I can't. And we've all been there. We've all started at that point. But that habit is rooted deep if that's how you've been doing it since you got out of school. That's something that you need to recognize is not the long-term goal and you need to start working towards creating a plan to get out from that. Number two. Everybody comes along some sort of windfall periodically. It might be a few hundred dollars. It might be a few thousand dollars. It might be something even more significant. When you get a windfall and your financial foundation is not solid, too many times you see people think that they should treat themselves. Hey, I just got a thousand dollars from, you know, from a stimulus check. So let's go out and buy that new phone that I want or you know, get some new clothes or take that trip that I quote, deserve. You know, that's the perfect opportunity for you to pay down some debt, to build a little emergency fund, to stick something in your IRA or something. It's something to further your financial future. And too often people feel that they deserve to splurge anytime they come into a windfall. I'm not against taking a little percentage of it and going out to dinner or buying your spouse something or buying yourself something nice, nice, but the majority of that money should go to further your financial goals if you are not in a place that everything is solid underneath. Number three, buying things based on the payment amount. If you think in terms of payments, you are not doing it right. You should be thinking in terms of how much things cost and you should be deciding whether you can afford things. The ultimate goal is whether you can buy them, not whether they fit into your monthly payment or monthly income because your number one wealth building tool, despite what people say, is not your home, it's your income. The amount of money you make over your entire life is the biggest tool most people will have to build wealth long term. The more payments you have, the more... $200 car payments or $600 car payments or $20 music subscriptions, all of these other things just eat away at the one tool that you have that can build wealth long-term. And finally, number four, and this is where Nick talks about, you know, making big decisions that can have huge impacts rather than worry, huge impact rather than worrying about the little micro transactions. And that is trusting salespeople to tell you what you can afford. The best example right now, given the housing market and just how chaotic everything is, is walking into a real estate agent's office or walking into a mortgage broker and having them tell you how big of a house you can buy based on your numbers. That's completely backwards. You have to understand incentives. 
what are they incentivized to do? They're incentivized to sell you the biggest house with the largest mortgage as fast as they can. That's how they make their money. So trusting somebody whose incentivization is to make the most money off of you is the way that you can make absolutely boneheaded moves the size of Mount Everest financially and put yourself in a very rocky position. So Eric, it, it sounds like you're talking about this wants versus need dichotomy too in, in some of this and, and our habits are often shaped uh, by this dichotomy. So how important is it uh, financially speaking to assess your poor habits overindulging in perceived needs when they may actually be wants. And Eric, you were touching upon this with the uh, with the house that you can afford or the vehicle monthly payment that falls within your current budget, barring no uh, financial catastrophes or job losses or anything like that. So, so talk to us about perceived needs um, and really looking at them through a through a, a lens of. Uh, is this actually a need or is this a want? And I'm just kind of spreading it thin. Wants versus needs is probably one of the most important topics when it comes to personal finance and where people really get off the rails. It's very easy to justify things you don't need. And a lot of times it's easy to identify the outliers of things you don't need, right? So even if you make a lot of money, you probably don't need a private jet. You probably don't need a swimming pool in your backyard unless you live in a certain type of climate that, you know, Arizona, you pretty much have to have one or have access to it. Otherwise you're inside for an entire summer. But there, even that, that's still a want. Where things get really confusing, and I think um, modern generations struggle with this more so, is that the want versus need boundary has gotten a lot more muddied. In the past, you know, in the 50s, if you needed a pair of jeans, you went down to your town's general store or whatever where you bought stuff like that and they sold you milk and they sold you pants and you walked in you found your side and you size and you got a pair of jeans now you can buy a 20 dollars pair of jeans you can buy a hundred dollar pair of jeans you can buy a 500 dollars pair of jeans so it's not as simple as i need jeans you know one of my favorite examples is a cell phone the vast majority of people use a cell phone to send texts look at facebook and maybe twitter and instagram and some basic web browsing a $100 phone will do that, but people are convinced that they need a $1,200 phone. And especially they need one every year or every two to the point that now you can buy them back to what we were talking about before, you can make payments on your cell phone. And that's absolutely absurd. What you needed was a device that would keep you connected. And unless you're financially stable and you've got emergency funds and paid off debt and all these other things. What are you doing buying a $1,200 phone? You don't need that. You want that. So being able to be truthful with yourself and touching on what Nick was talking about earlier, identifying your blind spots, putting an emphasis on deciding what you need versus what you want is very important because if you chase after what you want all the time, when you get older, you're not going to have what you need. Habits themselves, they're not inherently good or bad. They're just habits. It's the habitual action itself that is either beneficial or detrimental. In finance, time is your friend and poor money habits your enemy. So how can we get people to understand, this is a big point that I want to drive home today. How can we get people to understand that their $6 morning coffee, luxury vehicle, luxury brand new iPhones absolutely will bring less joy today, even though it feels like it brings joy, than a strong and fierce financial position tomorrow. We're talking about sacrificing now to live later with little sacrifice. As we were saying earlier, 
your biggest wealth building tool is not your house, it's your income. So the more you blow on frivolous things now, while you still have credit card debt, while you don't have any emergency fund savings, while you're not saving for retirement or your kid's college fund or any of that thing, the weaker that tool gets. There is plenty of time in your life for $6 lattes, luxury vehicles, expensive phones, lavish vacations, if that's what you really want to go towards. But once you're on the other side of this financial hill, as long as you're constantly playing catch up, you are trying to chase this financial freedom idea or potential retirement, but you're doing it with an anchor attached to your foot. You're trying to swim after this boat that's getting further and further away because you keep rating your income. You keep wasting it on things that, yeah, you might feel good for 30 minutes while you're driving in your car, but eventually that car will become like everything else you own and you won't care anymore. Everything you own, probably even your house at one point, is not at, doesn't bring you as much joy as you did when you first got it. And that's just the nature of the beast if you keep chasing that. Your life will have a cost. It has a cost right now. How much do you spend every single year to maintain your cost? The bigger that cost is, the more you need to accumulate over a lifetime to maintain it, and the less money you have to accumulate that bigger number over that time. It works against you on both sides. It, it doesn't take oftentimes long to get over, Eric, what you're calling the hill. In fact, you spoke in previous podcasts about a couple of years of buckling down and living like nobody else, not living like the Joneses, to get you over that hump and in a, in a position to start thinking financially into the future and, and maybe redeveloping uh, some of those habits or, or sacrificing less and going out to eat more. But the first steps in all of this is to shore up your financial situation, get over that hump uh, and, uh, and reap the benefits from there. Yeah, Nick. There, there might be exceptions, but I haven't found one. Just, just to simplify this concept for folks, every good financial decision, every good financial habit involves delaying gratification, right? So you're deferring consuming stuff today and pushing that out into the future. And the, the, the way I think about this is, yeah, I can go out and buy some stuff and buy a new car and buy a new house, but I'm basically trading my time, my future time for that stuff today. And what I mean by that is if I buy a new car, a new house, I'm going to have to work maybe five to 10 extra years to help pay that stuff off. So it puts me further away from my ultimate goal of answering to no one and being able to swing a golf club when I'm 55 and being the master of my own time. So when you put your financial goals and the game you're playing in simple terms and understand the trades that you're making, it becomes a much easier framework in which to operate. That is a fantastic point. And to illustrate it with actual numbers, here's a small example. Because a lot of people, they've never really been taught the concept of your money working for you. You know, there's this idea that when your money can make more money than you can, that's financial freedom, right? Because as an individual, for the most part, especially if you're an employee of somewhere, the only thing of value that you're trading right now is your time, right? Somebody else is paying you money in exchange for your time. 
because that's the one thing you can't buy more of in this life is time. So for a lot of people, that's their most valuable asset. When you take $1,000 and you spend that $1,000, you consume it and it's gone. Whatever joy you got out of it is gone forever. It's never coming back. If you take that $1,000 and you invest it or buy something, and for simple math, let's take a 10% return rate, and we'll do this very basic, you just gave yourself a $100 a year raise in perpetuity, assuming nothing else changes. So if you do that 10 times, you've now given yourself a $1,000 raise. If you do that 100 times, you've given yourself, you see where we go with this. So that's the ultimate concept is to, rather than taking that $6 and drinking it through a straw and enjoying it for 15 minutes, if you take all of those $6 and you use those to buy things like stocks, real estate, anything that brings money into your system and you do that consistently over a lifetime, you will look up and you will have a giant machine working for you and paying you money rather than a long list of lattes and, and cars and everything else that you have already consumed and you will be forced to continue to trade your limited time for money as long as you can. So it's clear our habits have a direct impact on how we manage our money, but sometimes we're not the whole part of the picture here. We have spouses and family that are contributing to the spending and to the financial decision makings of the household. So just as it is important in budgeting, it's also important that we have that conversation with the people in our households and modify their money habits as well. Keith, I, I don't know if this hits on uh, the spouse or the family or the household, but I'm a, a big fan of successful teams and studying what makes teams tick. And I'll, I'll use the example of the San Antonio Spurs, which I think they won like six titles in the middle 2000s. And I, I started to dig into the Spurs a couple years ago. They, they had bounced my, my Portland Trailblazers out of the playoffs several years uh, during that decade. And I stumbled upon this quote that was hanging in the Spurs locker room, and I think it still is up there, but this was kind of their mantra during their title run. And I'm not a big quote guy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. When nothing seems to help, I go look at a stonecutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without, such, without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the 101st blow, it will split in two. And I know it was not that blow that did it, but all that had gone before. So the Spurs' goal, obviously, each year dur during their title run was to win an NBA championship, right? But that's not what they were focused on. They, they were focused on that day's practice. The GM was focused on building an efficient roster. The coaching staff, which is world-class, was focused on their schemes. So they were very much focused on the process, their systems, their daily habits— with that North Star of winning an NBA title. And everything that they did on a day-in and day-out basis was designed with that North Star in line, but they obsessed about the process. And it resulted, as I said, in five or six titles. That's great. That's exactly right. You got to know what you want. You got to figure out the process. And you got to stick to it. And you got to stick with the details with, you know, day in and day out. You know, I, I say this, I harp on this all the time. You have to determine what's truly important. You have to decide what you actually want in life. We say this a lot. People will say one thing, but their habits and, you know, especially how they spend money will say other things. I talked about Chick-fil-A versus 
donating to your favorite cause earlier in this show. And you know, that's where the disconnect is. People say things, you know, here's a, here's, a, here's a really big example that I think most parents would agree with. Most parents would say that helping their kids in modern times pay for college would be a priority because of just how expensive it's gotten and not wanting their kids to start off as an adult with just the giant massive amount of debt that many of the kids are doing. And they would also agree that it's much more important than, and I'm gonna harp on this some more, there's $6 lattes in the morning. Yet when you look at the budgets, when you look at the expenses, that's not true. That's not what's happening. And let me show you why. So let's take a look at a typical family, two spouses with kids that they go to work every day and both parents on their way stop and buy one cup of coffee, one latte, not just a coffee, but their $6 latte. They spend $250 a month on coffee. $250 a month invested for 18 years at an 8% return is $120,000, which just happens to be how much it costs to send somebody to one of the major four-year universities in the state that I live in. $120,000 right there. So time and time again, I see it when I'm helping people with their budgets. One of the things they say they've always wanted to do is save for their kid's college, but they don't have the money to do it. And I know people that spend four or $500 a month at those types of places. The moral of the story, figure out what's truly important, write it down, get it on paper, develop a plan, and then follow through with it. Because otherwise, you're gonna end up creating these habits that over time will compound negatively and create this giant hill that'll be almost impossible to climb. So there you have it. Your decisions in life are largely on autopilot in the way of your habits. Don't like the way things are going? Take an honest look at your habitual actions and make changes. It's not going to be easy. If it were, everyone would be wealthy. Join us on the next Proper Sense podcast and be sure to check us out at propersense.com.